This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Episode 40 of the Mad Bad and Direct Strange Showcase, continuing our trek for the 1001 film introduction to Courtroom School Cinema, which is the Mad Bad and Direct Strange list. As always, I'm your host, Edward Jones, from the Depths of DVD Hell and Channel Superhero, and tonight we'll be finding out who the real monsters are in Clive Barker's attempt to create the horror version of Star Wars in 1990's Nightbreed. We'll also be taking an ass kicking tour of Paris in Jet Li's Kiss of the Dragon. But my co-host this evening is not only a blogger and podcaster, but also one-third of the Simplistic Reviews trail. It, of course, gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show, Matt Stewart. Hello, oh. Matt. Thank you so much uh, for having me, Elwood. I appreciate it. I am a monster Midian, if you will, and I am a <laughs> kung fu master on the streets of uh, Gay Perry as well. <laughs> it's certainly a unique pairing that you've uh, chosen tonight. Obviously, we've got... Clive Barker's second uh, directorial attempt with Nightbreed, uh, and then you've gone for Luke Besson's uh, collaboration with Jet Li in Kiss the Dragon, probably arguably one of his last good kung fu movies he did. Uh, yeah, cause after that he went to the Taken route, and uh, even Jet Li kind of uh, went down the uh, tubes, if you will, a little bit. Uh, there really wasn't much after uh, Kiss the Dragon, if uh, I may say so myself. Yeah, <laughs> after Kiss the Dragon we had Fearless, which was according to him his last kung fu epic and yeah he was supposed to be going on to do like historical pictures like the warlords which was really fantastic and i think when you see things like down the dog you're kind of like yeah probably was the best idea because it and especially when i see him in like in things like uh the expendables and it's all like you're kind of watching someone who's past his prime kind of like the later jackie chan years um yeah it's a little sad you know I feel like The Expendables is where a lot of people went to die. Even though people will argue that The Expendables are good movies or enjoyable movies, I have still not yet uh, seen an Expendables film. Really? No. I just, uh, I don't know if it's uh, the person in me that's just like, I don't want to see old people look old, or I'm just like, no, I'm good. I'd rather see uh, Schwarzenegger in Predator than see Schwarzenegger in uh, Expendables. It's... The tricky films because there's obviously the fan service there, and obviously mm-hmm. within the ca- the obvious casting. And I think it was really in the second one that they finally figured out how to write the Expendables movie because the first movie has a great start and has a great finish, but has this horrible middle section. And then mm-hmm. the second one, we obviously pass the directorial reins over to the director Conair, which I think was again was a smart decision having an action director rather than Stallone uh, yeah. director, director and it seemed to work, and then obviously Expendables Three comes out, and it's kind of, kind of the franchise running on fumes here, guys. So, it's like how many other people? I mean, uh, who who hasn't stepped up to be an Expendables film yet? I'm trying to think of like some late well, uh, '80s, '90s action star still yet to be represented. 
at the moment, we've yet to see Seagal. Uh, yeah, that's true. Show up. Jackie Chan has declined on numerous occasions because <laughs> he doesn't want to just do a cameo. Um, he did at one point offer to be like a villain, which would have been really interesting to see. Yeah, um, I like that idea. Because I think it would be only the sort of second time we've seen him play a sort of badass character, the other being the protector. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Which again had that horrible US cut. And it's only when you watch the Hong Kong cut where he re- basically reshot a lot of the fight scenes, especially the angle grinder fight scene where he's like putting himself a lot closer to the blades and you see exactly how it, sh- how it should have been. But he was very unhappy with how it turned out, the fact that he was playing this character who swore most shockingly. Yeah. Um, which was especially shocking for the Hong Kong cinema fans to sort of follow him and seeing like this kind of like goofy guy who does incredible stunt work and runs around with a bad Beatles haircut. Yeah. Uh, to suddenly see him try and play the, the badass in the, for the American market was kind of shocking. Yeah. I mean, it was only really when we get to Rumble in the Bronx that he sort of finally, I think, don't know if he had more clout when he came back that second time or what a change, but uh, it, it certainly seemed he was more in control of what was happening on the screen. So It, it seemed like it, because, I mean, I, mean I, I would say Rumble in the Bronx is probably the introduction to Jackie Chan for the American audience, because I remember that came out in 90, well, at least to American audience, it came out in, what, 95 or 96. I think yep. it was at about six, fifth or sixth grade when they came out. And it was like, oh, Jackie Chan, this guy is a badass kung fu master. And, of course, people have seen Police Story, all the Police Story movies before that, and Drunken Master before that as well, too. Um, so it was like the Americanized version of Jackie Chan. And then, of course, you got all the Rush Hour movies and things like that. Where, And then what? Uh, Around the World in 80 Days, I believe he was in. Uh, yes, film he too, was. With uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Was he in that movie as well? As Arnold a robot, I think. Arnold an interesting cameo. I mean, Arnold yeah. <laughs> retired at that point, and he just randomly turns up in the Steve Coogan movie. So. Uh, well, you know, you, you got to make up between governing the state of California and flying around the world. you got to do both, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, obviously... At the moment, you're with Simplicit Reviews. I mean, for those of our listeners not familiar with Simplicit Reviews, do you want to just obviously say what the site's about? Yeah, I mean, Simplicit Reviews is, um, well, I guess we're ironic in that sense because we try to be uh, as simplistic as we can with our reviews and our commentary. And uh, we do a monthly podcast or even, you know, uh, uh, two podcasts a month every once in a while. And we're nothing but simplistic. We have simplistic views on things, very... uh, macho very headstrong very kind of uh you might yell at us and say you guys are complete idiots which we are uh and we uh, proudly uh wear our idiocy on our sleeves it's not a problem whatsoever but uh we do talk about entertainment about tv about films uh, we have a lot of fun on the podcast we do games every month as well too and uh we also uh post articles and uh reviews to the website as well as well uh as well as well i'm repeating myself as this is as simplistic as it gets right now <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're, we're just three guys that just we don't really uh, we throw caution to the wind when we talk about things we don't really have uh, we don't really care about your opinion but you should certainly care about our opinion on simplisticreviews.net <laughs> I have to say that it's the, the production value for your show are absolutely incredible um, um, that's old DJ Valentine right there that is, is uh, him, him and Justin are the two uh, champions behind all, all the production you you uh you hear on that uh, podcast is all those two guys, and it's uh, a lot of hard work, a lot of uh, 
I don't want to give the secrets up or anything like that, though. But uh, it's uh, those two guys are definitely the champions behind uh, making the Simplistic Reviews podcast sound like it is. It's it's certainly a, a credit as someone who obviously edits their own show, probably explains the quality yes. of the show. Um, the patience it requires <laughs> to not only edit your your footage, but to then start tinkering with the background because when you start tinkering with the background, things have the tendency to go horribly wrong. So yes. it's a real credit that you can obviously. They've obviously got the formula down, and uh, obviously to make it sound as good as it does, because it is, uh, it, it's one of those shows that I use as an example when people talk about podcasts, and they always think that it's just like some guy in his basement, and it's just going to sound really crappy and <laughs> crackly, sort of this real old school, like late '90s version of what podcasting was. And you obviously, I think we need to bring show, that back, though. Like, I think we need the late '90s podcast uh, vibe back. We need crackly. We need. Uh... <laughs> people in a uh, vacuum if you will <laughs> uh, just, you listen to your show and it sounds like a proper radio broadcast it just shows the quality of work that is out there and it it also amuses me the fact that when you say to people oh we i'm doing a podcast and they're like oh that's so late 90s and you like look at the <laughs> sheer amount of podcasts which are now coming out it's yes. that everyone now has to have their own podcast and i think it's really people like dan Harmon, uh, mark maron sort of like pioneered the way yeah kevin so, smith is another yeah. one that definitely podcast like pioneered the podcast uh i mean uh elwood you can't be on the show anymore this isn't your way of getting on the show by uh <laughs> by uh, just kind of uh you know sucking the proverbial tit of simplistic reviews of course <laughs> no but i i i'm kidding around the i i appreciate that i mean we we do put a lot of work into the podcast and if it wasn't for other podcasts that we listen to and we appreciate your podcast. Uh, JD Duran is another person in particular that we kind of came up with also at the same time with podcasting, uh, the French toast Sunday crew, uh, people on the lamb cast, which kind of helped us kind of come up uh, in the podcasting world as, as well too. And if it wasn't for a lot of our, you know, contemporaries, like, uh, like I said, you as well, Elwood, uh, we appreciate the effort. It's, it's a good community too. And, we do appreciate people helping us out being on the show. We appreciate being on other people's shows as well, too. And uh, I think I'm being way too nice. So uh, can I curse? You feel free. Yeah, I've fuck that explicit. shit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> explicit rating for a reason. So. Thank you. I, I wasn't sure. I guess I had to make sure the E was right next to the uh, to the uh, iTunes uh, podcast link. So. Yeah. We'll soon find out if it's not. When oh, you know. The box yeah. starts filling up with angry emails, but... Beep it out if anything else. <laughs> I would say that something I certainly appreciate is the fact that we, that like your show um, and many of the ones you mentioned, that they're all part of the LAM podcasting network. I mean, you can obviously find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Um, and do you find that the fact that we have this network through the LAM, that it sort of helps more than if it, you're sort of like going on this independent track and just sort of, battling out there on your own the fact that we have this community you can sort of pull from uh do you think it sort of helps your show i, I think it definitely does because it gives us the outlet to actually i mean you have the monthly or the weekly pod uh, podcast on the lamb as well too where we talk about various subjects new movies we do lamperty and things like that too so i think i think it definitely adds the communal uh, value of the podcasting uh, just the network in general where you do get the network you do get you get to talk to other uh podcasters other people that are coming up because you know, however, however many years ago when we started podcasting, I think we're on podcast 68 or 67 now. And that's probably about four or five years in the making where we've, we've done podcasts. So 
over the course of that many years, we've made friends. I'm sure we've made some enemies, but that's cool. I'm, I'm all about enemies. Um, but it's, I think it's a great, uh, even in the independent market, I mean, we've made inroads with other people that are doing it independently, like uh, podcasts, like uh, first-time watchers. Uh, they don't really, I don't think they're really on a network, but we've become friends with them. Uh, uh, True Bromance Podcast. That's another one that kind of went independent for a long time. Um, like I said, in session, in session film, they've been independent for a very long time too. Um, but it all kind of came from, I think, doing one podcast on the lamb. And I think it was, uh, get to know the lamb. And I, th- I believe it was with, um, <sighs> French toast Sunday. I can't think of her name right now. I'm Lindsay. being a real dick right now. Lindsay. Yes. Lindsay street. Yep. Uh, I apologize. Lindsay. Sorry if you're listening to this, but <laughs> It was her, uh, JD, and myself, and that kind of that really got the podcasting thing rolling for us. And it was amazing to kind of meet friends that way and make connections. And we've uh, kind of went our own way, of course. You know, we've kind of found our own style, our own uh, gimmick, if you will. And it's been a lot of fun for a lot of years. And I'd like to thank a lot of people. I, I, I think I'm thanking too many people. Fuck all that shit. Thank was- us. Thank hey. us. You guys should be on your knees thanking us right now because we are the Simplistic Reviews podcast, okay? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, it's amazing the amount of people, and I know Jay was saying this when he was on the show previously, that the amount of people who come on the Lamcast, they do one or two episodes, and mm-hmm. then they kind of get that bug, and it's all like, oh, kind of wish I did another podcast. They start their own show, and it's been funny seeing the amount of shows which have obviously come away from it. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, prime example, we obviously be... Todd and uh, Kristen who do the Walt Semi podcast. Uh, you yes. You've got Will Slater over at Exploding Helicopters who's since launched Exploding Helicopters, the podcast. Mm-hmm. So yep. if you uh, ever wanted to have a podcast just about Chopper Fireballs, then he's kind of <laughs> like the guy to go to. And it's I, the thing I love about the community is the fact that everyone seems to play this role. Like, yeah. if you want to, if you need to know about puppets, we've got Todd Liebenau over at Forgotten Films. He's our puppet guy. Um, you want to know about classic cinema, we've got Kristen Lopez at Jason Classic Film, and she's like, you know, she's our classic film girl. Um, yeah. And, you know, the girl, if you want to uh, extend your podcast, just ask her about Fort um, in Our Stars, and I'm sure she'll have more than a few things, but I think she's also recently said she's launching a show on her own. Um, we're still waiting to get the launch date for, but when it does, we'll make sure we mention it on the show. And it's been funny, obviously, seeing how the network's grown, just from people obviously coming on, doing those introductory shows and the thing I love about podcasts especially is the fact that you get to talk to people you wouldn't normally get to meet I mean everyone's for myself seems to be stateside yeah. um, so unless they come over to these rain soaked shores um, it's very doubtful I would meet a lot of people and it's nice being able to obviously converse with people like yourself and uh, other guys over from the states like the French, as you mentioned the French show Sunday people uh, yeah. like Todd and uh, Kristen I mean they're all based in the states so, so otherwise we wouldn't uh be able to have these uh, conversations. I think for that, it's a uh, it's a great method and uh, a great platform in which to uh, trade ideas and obviously discuss things further. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a global community, and it's. It, I mean, I, I think I've spoken to more people in England over the past five years than I've spoken to people in England over the course of my previous twenty seven years. Yeah. So, and that's mostly to do with pie. I mean, it's, I, I'm speaking to you. I've spoken to Jay. Jay was a big harbinger to uh you know he obviously works very hard with lambcast and everything like that too and jay and i well we we converse over podcasts but uh he's a great uh like rallier for the network and everything in general too bubble weed is another great one too and dylan 
um, there's a lot of people to thank for what we've done and how we've kind of come up in the world. And you know, it, it's it's great to, to talk to. You. I think I don't think we've spoken since the 50th podcast no. that we did for uh, Simplistic Reviews. So no, it's been we, uh... quite a while. It was that was the last time we spoke, and uh, yes. I got named and shamed for my love of Total Divas. So, well, you know, yeah. It, to be fair, I've I've watched a little bit of that as well too, and there's nothing to be ashamed about. It's uh, as good. long as yeah, as long as you're not uh, talking about it in front of your wife, which I've done and I've been slapped, okay, and, uh, emasculated by her. But uh, that's perfectly fine because oh, uh, I'm I'm married, when, and when you're married, yeah. you are emasculated. To be honest, I got my uh, it's complete opposite of my house because my wife got hooked on it. I had it on in the background, and she was like, used to be like on the computer and stuff when I'm watching my Total Divas and getting far too worked up over Nikki and John's relationship and why they can't possibly work it out. And That's true, yeah. Well, to be fair, my, my wife did watch her first WrestleMania uh, last month, and oh, she really? actually she enjoyed it quite a lot. She was very invested, yeah. And uh, for all for the pre-show and the five-hour show that uh, <laughs> came after the pre-show for all seven hours. She was uh, in front of the TV, and she was enjoying it very, very much. She didn't like the last match. She didn't like the Roman Reigns Triple H, but I don't think anybody liked that anyway, so it's fine. I think that's that's really says a lot. If, uh, and it wasn't even the best one. I no, mean, it she, was not. She should have looked at the previous two, and then she would have really seen uh, why people get excited about WrestleMania. So. Yes, she did. And I think before that, we were watching some uh, TLC matches, and she was enjoying some of the uh, Edge Christian uh, Dudley Boys, uh, all those good matches from oh, the uh, classics early 2000s uh, Hardy Boys so yeah. she was into that she was covering her eyes because she was like oh my god I can't believe this is happening <laughs> but, uh, but she really enjoyed Wrestlemania which uh, she doesn't like the Wyatt Boys though I love the Wyatt family she doesn't like them though those uh, yeah because the, the, the Wyatt family are basically a crazy redneck I love them though oh, I love them love me some Wyatt family yeah <laughs> and I, I liked them when they were back in NXT because mm. um, I'm a big NXT guy um, I love yes. NXT and I love uh, Lucha Underground. Um, Lucha Underground in particular is coming to Netflix, which I'm very excited about. Really? Okay. Unlike a lot of wrestling shows, it's episodic TV, which just also <laughs> happens to feature wrestling. So yeah. I'm very curious to see how it's going to play to the Netflix crowd because obviously they're not, they'll obviously be established wrestling fans there, but yeah. by and large, it's not going to be a wrestling crowd. Yeah. And Lucha Underground is not sold like a wrestling show as i said it's it's got sort of real production values and it's storylines that it tells and it just happens to feature like a lot of wrestling so it's kind of like watching an action film in a way yeah it's, um, it's almost like a combination of like a telenovela mixed with uh exploitation mixed with total divas with a dash of uh nxt in it that's how i would kind of sum it up maybe yeah so i'm very interested to obviously see how it goes and the fact that they deal in seasons rather than just going all the time like the other federations do so it's all that perfect model to to really work on netflix i mean it's already on itunes so i would uh hope it really sort of picks up and uh and and gets more people interested in when it hits uh netflix but we obviously just gotta wait and see and then obviously as with everything on netflix it's all a case <laughs> of coding because yes. if you're in the u.s you have great netflix if you're in the uk you have naf netflix yeah, it's like, what is Netflix? We haven't gotten the whole thing yet. You're giving us half of You're giving us Edflix, or get, maybe just Flicks. <laughs> we get the bargain bin basement version. Oh, man. Well, sometimes you find some treasures in there every once in a while for 99 cents. Yeah. <laughs> Until then, it's just wallowing around in your knees in a pile of 
cinematic shit. It feels well, like. you know, you, you gotta you gotta you know crawl through a river of shit just like Andy Dufresne. <laughs> um, before we obviously go on to the films, I just want to just talk about your film taste in general. I mean, where would you say you sort of went from just being your sort of regular film goer to sort of become the more sort of critically minded sort of fanatical film go that you could potentially see yourself as being now? Well, uh, I mean, I've always, I've grown up watching film because just my, my father, he would always record everything on VHS. He was, a, he was a, he was a huge collector, but he was also an incessant person of just recording everything. Like he never wanted to have anything go past him because this was the seventies or, or I was born in 1983. So this was the 80s, and even before that, my dad would always just record everything on VHS, whether it was music videos on MTV or just movies on USA, uh, USA, obviously, USA Network in the uh, US, uh, or anything else. It was mainly MTV and USA my dad would always watch, or HBO, of course, HBO in the early days, early 80s HBO, where uh, it's vastly different than the HBO now. Uh, but he would just record everything. So I remember from an early age, he would always allow me to watch whatever I wanted to. My dad had no, he was a hippie, so he really didn't care what his kid watched. Both my parents were hippies, so it was like, whatever you want to watch, it's cool with us. We don't really care. So I remember from an early age watching a lot of uh, 80s slasher horror from Friday the 13th and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, everything from probably the time I was about five or six years old. Those are very early memories of just watch whatever you want. So it stuck with me and scared the living shit out of me. And I was a very nervous kid because I would have watched this horrible shit. But also I was allowed. So I kind of I, I dug that and I would be able to talk to tell people at school like I saw this like, wow, you saw that. It's like, yeah, it was fucking bloody. It was awesome. <laughs> but it would also scare me a lot. Yeah. Um, so there's always been that horror exploitation kind of like kind of gritty a cultish movie in me um and then later on in life i would just keep watching films watching films and uh movies have always just been a huge part of my life and from the time i was five years old all the way up until now just movies have been a constant fixture to me and have just it's it's been a way to kind of connect with my parents or my dad or just friends in general and as i got older of course i would have specific tastes you know i love kevin smith movies i love i love schlocky horror schlocky comedy just really crap movies but then i like highbrow stuff too so i try to have a really well-rounded cinema taste uh i don't really i I concentrate on horror but i can watch anything and i feel like i'm able to discuss anything with anybody when it comes to film for the most part so you would say say it's important to keep sort of a an open palette when it comes to viewing films rather than to sort of focus on just one particular genre, would you say? Yeah, I mean, um, it is important. I mean, if you want to be considered a a critic or you want to be considered somebody who can be taken seriously in the podcasting realm or any realm in general, just even in the working realm, just working and doing your job, you need to have a well-rounded palette of things you know that you know. Just, Just keep increasing your knowledge. I mean, my whole thing in life's always been if you're not learning something once a day you might as well just kill yourself because there's no reason for you to be alive if you're not learning at least one thing a day because if you're not learning something you're dying 
So just off yourself and make room for the rest of the people that are going to make room for you to learn and things like that. So um, it is cool that people specialize in one thing. I have no issues with that whatsoever. That means you're well-rounded in that segment of whatever you're doing, you know like the malcolm gladwell thing if you do things for five straight years you will become an expert um but i mean i think it, it, watch everything just i know it's easy for people because critics in general too you know they watch one thing and that's why critics kind of get a bad rap personally i don't listen to critics even though i'm a fucking critic which is ironic <laughs> as all hell but don't listen to me but at least listen to what i'm saying and if you want but form your own opinion like I've had the biggest beef with a critic down here in South Florida, Renee Rodriguez, who's been the film critic for the Miami Herald forever. And this guy sucked. This guy would always give. But this is me when I was 14 or 15 years old. And I'm like, oh, why is he giving, you know, Shakespeare love four stars, but he gave Anaconda only one star. I fucking love Anaconda. Yeah. Shakespeare love. I do not care so much about it. So why is this guy giving it a four star? and He's giving it one. But he's a critic. He has his own opinion. I would I wouldn't give Anaconda four stars, but I would give it a slot, solid two and a half, maybe three, yeah. <laughs> depending on what kind of mood I'm in. Uh, but you know, it's just have your own opinion, man. It's it's not nobody's gonna. I mean, people are gonna crucify you because it's the internet, and the internet will always have its opinion about you. But fuck the internet. Even though we're on the internet, don't care what other people say. Have your own opinion. Have your own voice. That's why podcasting is fucking kick ass, and do your thing, man. Yeah, I mean, just one sort of life round thing uh, then would be to really sort of quite ask what your thoughts on uh, Eli Ross' current stance on the critics because he's decided to pull the Kevin Smith card and take on the critics. He mm. personally has made numerous comments, um, especially on the Brady Snell's podcast, where he felt that critics like ourselves, people who work in the blogosphere rather than for print journalism, are not qualified to review or question his movies. Um, now, personally, I've always took the stance that criticism is just one man's opinion, or one woman's yeah. opinion. Um, mm-hmm. It's not gospel that we're quoting here. It's just, you know, if you, it's the same as if you ask your friend at work what's their thoughts on a feeling are, that on mm-hmm. a particular film are. You know, that's criticism. It's, it's just someone's opinion on something. It's there to provide a guide. Um, yeah. What's your sort of thoughts? I mean, do you consider yourself, even though you work within the, the sort of electronic realm uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to criticism and certainly within the podcasting realm, um, yeah. that you could be considered, your opinion could be considered any less than someone who works within the more traditional uh, print medium? Well, I think print media and just like uh, just digital, even digital media, like well-established digital media, because everybody's gone digital at this point. Um, I, I don't consider my opinion any less than what their opinion. I mean, of course, their opinion, like you know, their opinion is more valid, I think, to most people because they've been reading their opinion for fifteen, twenty years or something like that. So that's fine. Um, I think as people start to drop off or don't watch films or are kind of going the wayside and not reading reviews, their their opinion becomes less and less, which. I don't think it's fair because everybody's entitled to their own opinion. It may not be what I agree with because I have my own personal taste, but I think that comes down to everybody who reviews things. Like if somebody comes from watching films of Ingmar Bergman, they're obviously not going to agree with me enjoying films by, 
I don't know, uh, Quentin Tarantino or films by uh, Robert Rodriguez. I mean, it's, it's, it's a completely separate thing. There's, film has been going on for over 100 years at this point. When you go all the way back from Thomas Edison doing Frankenstein to now to Anarudu doing The Revenant, nobody's going to agree. Nobody's going to have a 100% consensus unless it's a Marvel movie or unless it's a Pixar movie, then it will always have a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, which to me is the most, uh, it's a little asinine to have one site yeah. be the aggregate for every single thing. And I, part of, I, I'm cursing a lot, but I fucking hate it. <laughs> it's a flawed and concept, I, Rotten Tomatoes. It's a completely, it's completely flawed. And it's based on how, who are your dedicated reviewers. There's like 25 or 50 dedicated tomato meter people that are always going to be your 50 people which sucks i mean personally i do not i do not read reviews i do not go on rotten tomatoes i need to be i need to be fun because i need to be it's completely ridiculous and stupid with the way you see reviews and you'll see something on Rotten tomatoes like batman versus superman is the most contemporary example right now which is completely funny to me where me personally, I did not enjoy the film. I, had, I think it had a lot of flaws. It wasn't my favorite movie. It had a lot of problems. It's 50% or 30%, whatever it is on Rotten Tomatoes. However, on IMDb, it's like 7.5. So it has a C average, but then on Rotten Tomatoes, it's failing. It's not even a kid in Florida would be able to pass his high school competency test with a 30%. They might be able to because, you know, Florida isn't very smart. But it's just so funny to me where you have professional professional reviewers on Rotten Tomatoes, but then you have the fans on IMDb. So I don't know. It's it's first of all, watch what you want to watch. Second of all, then read the reviews and gauge your opinion. Because I think reviewers really they, they do have a lot of sway in what people see and what people want to watch and things like that too. And I think it's a pretty unfair system sometimes. But I I would never tell somebody to say like do not fucking see this film. See the movie. I don't yeah. care what you what you see. First of all, you're not taking money out of my pocket. If anything, I'm taking money out of my pocket because I'm not being brokered by the studio, of course, to go see a movie for free. So I'm spending, you know, ten bucks, twelve bucks, uh, twenty bucks with popcorn and soda with the film ticket. So yeah. uh, I'm the I'm the sucker spending twenty dollars every time I go to the film. So, uh, but it's just the way it is, man. And. I don't know. Uh, like I said, I, I'm not a big fan of Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not a big fan of IMDb. I'm not a big fan of reviewers. I'm a big fan of film, and I think people should just watch film. I mean, go. don't just go go to go to a movie. You yeah. know, expand your mind a little bit. Even if the movie's shit, at least you learned that you did not like that movie. That's all. And then have an opinion about it too. Don't be scared about what people are going to fucking say about you. In these days where everyone, where studios seem to be buying off critics. I, um, it makes me miss. Uh, it just makes me miss generally the grand poobah of our industry, Roger Ebert. And I mm-hmm. think he was like one of the last true critics. He was like really the godfather of our industry. Just the fact that he was always there for like young critics. And I remember him yeah. like constantly like commenting on things that younger, new upcoming critics had like put us. And now when I look at the field and we see like people like Joe Blow. Ain't it cool news? These like hacks are just basically yeah. bought off by the studios to publish self-written, like pre-written uh, comments and stuff. It makes me miss the days of like the true film fan reviewers of his status and just the just purely. I'm not saying that they're not good writers now. Just the 
the encyclopedic knowledge that he brought to his reviews and the fact it would constantly lead you off interest in Pascal from perspectives that, that uh, you wouldn't otherwise consider. And there are very few critics left now who are like yeah. that. I think people like Kim Newman um, would be like the only example I can really give because people like Mark Mode, who was once the leather jacket that uh, young gunslinger is sort of like become more the uh, older tw tweed jacket and slippers critic. Uh, he seemed to calm down for the most part now in his later years. So, Yeah, well, I think the major, like you bring up Roger Ebert, which is at least he didn't always agree. I, I, I never, I, I didn't always agree with him, but at least when he gave you a review, he gave you a reason. Yeah. Now in these days, it's kind of like the movie sucks. Like why? It's like, oh, it's bad. It's like, well, thank you for your commentary. I really appreciate your effort to review a film in a very fair and balanced way. But these are the reviews that people want to hear these days. People do not want to hear a diatribe. I'm going to die, put diatribe in quotes, of course. But they don't want to hear a reason why a movie sucks. All they want to hear is, is this movie good or not? Does it suck or does it rule? Does it rock? And that's what it's come down to these days. And, this, and that's the problem with Twitter and the problem with a lot of these other because film sites where it's like, this movie's cool. Hashtag Batman versus Superman rocks. And it's like, and then on the other hand, you got this movie blows cock. Like Batman versus Superman blows cock, and uh, hashtag. Sorry, I forgot the hashtag before that. <laughs> but this is what it's come down to, which is completely. I mean that, and this is why I can't take a lot of people seriously anymore because this is what the review system has come down to. And then if you do have a va a very valid opinion, a very like, whether it's um, condemning a film or accommodating a film, people go like, "Well, you fucking suck too. I hate you." And then it scares people away because you have internet trolls, and you're always going to have internet trolls. I've dealt with my part of internet trolls, and we all have. It's it's kind of like if you're going to be in the business of talking about stuff that it's going to be very uh, debatable, you're going to have people that are going to tell you you suck. Yeah. And uh, I think that's and I think that's that's bad for the business, and it's bad for pod podcasters, especially podcasters coming up because. When we were coming up too, we would have our people that were like, kill yourself, why don't you blow your brains out because that's not funny. What we thought we were doing was funny as hell. We loved it. So it came to a point where like, fuck you, you know? It's like we want to put that out there. But because uh, they want, you know, trolls want to be fed. They want to be fed the F you, F you, F. They get hard on it. They, they love it. So, uh, but Roger Ebert was a guy who never cared what people said. I'm sure he got death threats, hate mail. Everything. I'm sure he got he got commendations. He got everything. Damnations. Whatever it is. But at least he was a guy that you respected in the industry. And even after his unfortunate circumstances, he kept going and everything like that. But now you have so many different avenues of how to get your news and how to get your reviews and how to get this and how to get that. That. Um, it, but it's good for the business, I think, though, too, podcasting wise, review wise, that you have so many avenues to get information. But keep putting your information out there. I mean, people are going to hate you. People are going to hate you. People are going to love you. People are going to love you. I have no idea what people think about our podcast. They're probably like under their breath like, these fucking hacks. I can't believe they're <laughs> almost on 70 podcasts, cocksuckers. So <laughs> it is what it is. But it's, it's fun to talk about film and talk about talk with like-minded people. You may not agree with everybody with what everybody's saying, but at least you can have a intelligent debate about you may not come to a consensus about you agree but at least you can get to the point where you respect what each person's saying and i think but what sucks is that these days people are scared to put 
their opinion out there too because they're they're scared of the giant kill yourself or go fuck yourself uh twitter uh rampage or something like that you know what i mean yeah i think yeah, that's a real sort of perfect entry point really for our first one this evening we're going to obviously start with nightbreed uh from 1990 mm. 1990 um now as i said this is a very divisive film and in a way I feel yes. that I'm going to be defending this film because um, our friends I think I, at, I might be too <laughs> um, yeah because I mean our friends over at the uh, Lair of the Unwanted reviewed uh, Nightbreed and they didn't like it and I found that kind of shocking because this is one of my favorite films um, I came to it quite late later as I discovered it's in the late 90s it was a late night viewing and I sort of stumbled across it, not thinking much going into it, and it's sort of become this cult film for me. It's, um, and it's certainly got its its followers. The film itself, as it was released in a shortened cut in 1990, since then we've seen a director's cut being released onto Netflix, um, as well as the most complete cut known as the Cabal Cut, uh, which runs at about 155 minutes and features a combination of very cleaned up footage as well as quite grimy VHS footage but it's certainly the truest experience possible and the one cut that I would hope eventually makes it onto a DVD or Blu-ray in the near future but until now uh, the director's cut is probably the closest we're going to get to uh, that cut. For those not familiar with Nightbreed it's the second film to be directed by legendary horror author Clive Barker uh, who had previously directed Hellraiser. Here was given significantly a large budget to play around with, having been only given two million for uh, Hellraiser. He was given eleven million to turn in Nightbreed. Um, the film itself follows a troubled young man named Boone who has visions of a mythical place called Midian, where the monsters hide away from humanity. Um, now, however, he doesn't. We didn't realize is that it's actually a real place. Um, and it's somewhere that the evil psychologist, Dr. Philip K. Decker, played here by the equally legendary director, David Cronenberg, uh, who also has a dual life as a bottom-faced serial killer, is determined to find for himself and decides to use Boone to get there. Um, however, framing Boone for a series of murders he's carried out, Boone is actually resurrected and taken in by the monsters of Midian and finds himself soon becoming their protector as the forces of humanity close in and threaten to essentially uh, extinguish this last bastion for the monsters uh, to hide out. Um, what's your sort of thoughts on this one? Because this is certainly an unusual film. Here we have probably one of the earliest examples I could think of where the monsters are actually the good guys. Yeah, uh, I, I remember. I mean, I have a, a good recollection uh, of this film, watching it on HBO as 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 a young kid. I think I remember seeing this movie. Came out in 1990. I think it probably came to HBO at about 1991, 1992. So I might have been about maybe nine or ten years old. And this this movie scared me just because it's it's scary, it's scary monsters. It's very very dark. It's uh, I think Philip Decker is probably one of the scariest one of the scarier psycho killers I, I would put it up i mean if you put jason and decker neck to neck i would almost say decker is a far scarier monster just oh. because he is a human yeah and he, the just the mask, mask itself too oh god it, it's it's haunting the mask it's it's like a gimp mask 
it's it's very like Texas Chainsaw meets like gimp mask type of thing. I don't I don't know. There's something really creepy going on with that whole thing. And he talks out of the side of his mouth, and it's very like you know BDSM, very, very Clyde Barkery, if you will. You know, I'm sure he had a lot to design that mask uh, from his twisted uh, psyche. But um, I, I like this film. I think it's uh, there are some parts of it that I do agree why people may or may not like it. I think it's a little. Um, understated about how Boone get, gets his visions, how he's obtaining these dreams to Midian or Midian. Um, so there could be some weak plot points, but I think overall it's a very straightforward story. It's a person who's uh, having dreams and he's also a tortured soul that you don't really know that much about, which I wish they would expand on a little bit more. Uh, but it's all, it's really just talking about like the monsters inside of us and also monsters that we live amongst and the monsters that are also hidden away from us. So I think there's a lot to be said about this film and just the practical effects are awesome. Or like, you know, I, I like the stop motion animation for some of the monsters as well, too. Uh, it's very Tim Burton-y as well, too, I think, with some of the things. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Danny Elfman does the soundtrack, which is amazing. And it's very kind of a nightmare before Christmassy a little bit, too. Uh, so I, I love a lot about this film. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as I mentioned already, David Cronenberg here is plays the psychologist uh, Decker um, and also the serial killer mm-hmm. I have no idea what it is about Cronenberg but he loves playing either doctors or psychologists because every time I see him in an oh, acting yeah. role he's always playing the psychologist I mean he turns up as a um, psychologist in Alias and it's, it's, I don't know what it is whether he's, I mean he plays the doctor as well in Jason X <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> um, he, I mean, he's, he's only in for about all the five seconds, but he, he's yeah. certainly in there. Um, and then he's a doctor who gives birth to the maggot in The Fly, also, which he also directed. But he's in that as a doctor delivering the uh, Gina Davis's maggot. Yep, and he's also in Extreme Measures, so mm-hmm. he racks he racks them uh, up these unusual cameos, and it's he's probably one of those most underrated sort of talents as director turned actor um, because he's phenomenally creepy without even trying um, even and the fact what I love especially about his character is the fact that you know he's evil essentially from the start um, mm. and it's the fact that there's no big mystery about the fact that he's evil and what his intentions are um, I mean the fact you find out he's the button face killer is Find that find that out pretty early on. I thought it was quite revolutionary, and the fact that here we have a film, as I mentioned already, the monsters are actually the good guys. So this is pre Nightmare Before Christmas, which a lot of people would yeah. say is one of those first examples of the monsters being the good guys. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that Barker's approached this really, as I mentioned at the start, as his attempt to do the horror version of Star Wars. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's when, yeah, because when you look in the, the when you have that scene where you go for Midian, and you see all the different monsters, and it's all practical effects, which is something I really mm. love about this film as well. Um, yeah, because I would hate to see them remake it and just it to be a mess of CGI, no doubt. Ah, yeah. <laughs> but I it's, mean, it's these... just cool to see that. Like, it's like, like you said, Star Wars. It's like the giant cantina scene. It's like you're seeing these vagabonds from across the world universe in one place <laughs> um, and it's a, it, there's this real sort of childlike uh, curiosity to how he approaches the monster it's kind of like 
seeing what the world must have seen the world must have like been like to for the eyes of like a child like Barker I could mm-hmm. like to think that this is like when he was a child this is sort of the world he imagined for himself because um, anyone who's actually met Clive Barker will know that even though he writes some of the darkest horror going and some really mm-hmm. twisted does some really twisted art he's such a down to earth nice guy when you meet him there uh, in science <laughs> and stuff he's such a nice guy and it's all like kind of disappointed in a way that he's not this dark guy but I suppose when you're writing dark and twisted things and certainly creating uh, these horrible images that sort of scar the minds, I mean, like from Hellraiser's Cenobites to obviously the monsters we see here, you, I suppose you don't have to be dark in your off, off the clock life. Um, you can yeah, see- I think, yeah, you get a lot of that from a lot of directors. I mean, like I've never met Clive Barker, but he does seem because like a down to earth, nice guy where it's like you're coming up with some of the most twisted things I've ever seen. Like, if you've seen Hellraiser 1, or even Nightbreed for this instance, I mean, there's some dark, twisted, just fantastical, like, I don't know what this person was on or what he was thinking, but then he comes off like, hey, I'm Clyde Barker, I'm a nice guy. It's like, uh, so it begs the, who's the who's the real monster? Is it the person writing it, or just the people that he's writing about? You know, that type of thing, so. I mean, I love, this is, I mean, in Barker here, for the, if you're not familiar with his work, I mean, it may come as a surprise just how blunt he is, especially when it comes to gore. I mean, we're, mm. what, 15 minutes into the film and we've already got um, uh, Narkis, who we later find out is also a member of the Nightbreed, um, yes. trying to tear his own face off. Yeah, that with was some interesting. some considerable <laughs> success, it has to be said. Um, and it, it's funny how we obviously see these grotesque creatures, but the more we get to know about them, the less grotesque they seem. Um, so the, the way that the monsters become very humanized, even though they're not actually doing anything different, it's just the fact that we, we get to know these char- characters, and we sort of uh, become less horrified by them. Did yeah, because I think the thing too, it's like, well, I mean, I think it's interesting because like you say, Narcisse, like uh, when you meet him in, in the hospital, he seems to just like a very disturbed person. And I think one of the kind of, one of the falls of this film and, I mean, this is why I think this film almost works better in like a TV sense or something like that, because there's so much rich history that you can write about the characters and uh, Midian and just like the history of all the Nightbreed in general, that there's so many rich characters that you want to know more about. It's like you want to know more about, you know, Baphomet, who they pray to. You want to know more about, you know, um, Narcisse and why he ended up in the hospital, and why he wants to find Midian, Midian as well. It's like, um, there's so many different things in this film that you're like, wow, I wish I can get more, more and more and yeah. more because it doesn't seem like two hours for the, because we we're going off a director's cut, of course. Um, two hours just isn't enough to understand like these characters and how they got there and why they want to stay hidden and things like that and why people hate them as well too. Cause that, that comes in later on in the film and even Decker himself. I'd like to know more about Decker and why he, hides behind the mask and why he hates monsters or wants to become a monster. And there's so many different, there's such rich stuff in this film that you want to know more about. So, um, but overall it's just, uh, if anything for the film, it's lacking, you get, it's lacking giving you more, which I understand. You only have a certain amount of minutes for a film, but I want to know more. Yeah. I want to know more about the history of this. It's, it's certainly one of those films, which has got that, that sort of rich tapestry it 
weaves within its, its context. It's the same as uh, when you look at Richard Kelly's Southland Tales. It's this world mm-hmm. that you kind of want to explore more. You want to get lost in it. And in a way, Barker does his best to try and keep the audience informed as to what's happening, where Boone is this prophesized uh, savior of Midian. And we obviously, mm. the way he chooses to explain it is via these series of cave paintings, and it shows, shows obviously all these events that we've obviously seen previously in the film, and that yeah, what it's essentially going to be his his path he's supposed to lead, and it's about him obviously stepping up to the plate and and fulfilling this role as this prophesied savior. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we have all these interesting characters, and as you said, we've got like Decker. What's his bag. I mean, by the time we get to the finale, I mean, they pretty much replaced Decker with the char- the character of the preacher. Yeah. Um, who we have, and kind of be- takes on a more religious slant, where yeah. we have we have uh, the preacher essentially leading these redneck sheriff uh, sheriff's men, basically going to wipe out Midian and send yeah. them on this this campaign. I'm trying to think. It's like a Inquisition in a way. The yeah, I would to, say it's something like that, out. yeah. Because it comes all very fire and brimstone, especially at the end. And the fact that when we're introduced to um, the preacher's name, I'm trying to remember now. Well, I think uh, uh, Ashbury. Ashbury. He's a drunk. And yeah, he, yet, he reminds me a lot of, uh, if anybody's read Preacher, he reminds me a lot of Jesse Custard uh, yes. from Preacher, the comic book. And I finally today, I put that together because I came kind of, uh, late to the party with Preacher, but he's very reminiscent of uh, Jesse Custard to me now. <laughs> I mean, this is he goes from being a drunk to suddenly becoming this firebrand preacher, who's like essentially leading the charge. I mean, even though they they seem to bring him on, along only so they can like have some sort of religious um, yeah. justification for what they're planning to do, because essentially it's they're going out to massacre these monsters who. Are in hiding. They're not going out and attacking not bothering the, anybody. the population. Yeah. They just want to just be. They just want to be who they who they are, and that's what I, I love at the end. And the fact that these monsters, for the most part, a lot of them aren't violent people. They they have to be have to um, actually bring themselves to fight the sheriff's men when they actually show up at the end. Yeah, Boone actually rallies them because they're like, I don't want anything to do with this, and he, and he finally has to say like, if don't do this for yourself, do this for your children, do yes. this for like the people after you. Screw yourself, you guys are doomed. Your kids can keep living on after you at least. And I mean, the end finale in particular, I think, is just a wonderful set piece because we obviously got Boone, and uh, we obviously have these huge monsters that get that are basically the berserkers, held in yes. the basement for the berserkers. <laughs> Um, and it's interesting, again, that's just another great idea that is sort of woven within the fact that these monsters are self-governing. So the monsters they consider too dangerous to be amongst the, the sort of population, they keep mm-hmm. in prison in the basement of uh, Midian. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that in the end they're basically unleashed on the sheriff's men, just basically as sort of this last-ditch uh, effort to sort of save their city. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's just all these these wonderful pieces that are slowly sort of put together. I mean, was there anything in this film you didn't like at all? Or? I mean, I, I think it falls into like similar tropes of just any horror movie or any just movie in general, where it's like, okay, we have the 
the the conflict between the hero and the antagonist, and it, it, it follows just very similar tropes too, where there's always a problem where the hero gets captured, they have to capture, they have to recapture the hero. The hero comes back to retake the city and help the people overcome, and then we're overwhelmed. Oh no! Oh, here comes the cavalry. So it, it kind of comes off as like a cliched like war movie, if you will, or just a cliched horror movie as well too, but. I mean, it's a horror movie, so if it's cliched and it's this and that, it doesn't really bother me so much. Yeah. Um, I, I think Barker's, since he's basically creating his own, he, he's taking his own story and making it his own and doing what he can with it, I think it also helps instead of some producer head. Well, of course, we can also get into the, the, the difference between the original ending and the ending that we saw at the end of this film, too. Okay. I think... The end of this film is it's a little kind of like it's it's hopeful. It's a little ambiguous. It's a little kind of like happy, like, oh, what do we do now? And then it kind of ends. So I can understand where people don't like the uh, having to make up your own mind or make up your own interpretation of what happens to these uh, remaining Nightbreed after the assault on Midian. Um, but overall, I think it's fine. I think it's it's a hope it's a hopeful ending, but it's also kind of a happy ending too. Which after so much horrible stuff happens, you kind of need a little bit of a uh, reprieve, if you will. Yeah. So, uh, and comparing it to the other ending, I think it really escapes the old trope of what it could have been or what people are used to seeing yeah. in this film. If you watch the director's cut and the other cut, uh, there's definitely a trope that if I'm comparing the two now, I'm like. Okay, I'm glad they did this instead of that. So, yeah, I mean, we'll just one ahead. We're just going. There will be spoilers from this point on. I mean, yeah, sorry, succeed. the movie is 25 years old. I mean, 26 years old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the the ending. It's not so much a spoiler. I mean, obviously, in the end, the in the director's cut now, we we have uh, we obviously have our preacher here, who's basically looked into the Nightbreed's version of God. Yeah, he looked, he looked in the Baphomet and everything. Yeah, who's basically this this prophet? And yes, I know because of the effects, it basically looks like this <laughs> badly made statue that they have. But you know, you got to you know got to go with it. You got to remember the time when this was made. You had limited effects here, people. Um, and basically, he's by looking into the eyes of Baphomet, and um, as a result of this ongoing battle, ends up being horribly burned and scarred, and he in a way, loses his own faith and discovers a new faith in, in obviously, what Baphomet stood, stood for. Um, and by the end of the director's cut, he's making plans to hunt down the remaining Nightbreed, who at this point are going off into the world to try and find their own safe haven. They're trying to establish a new medium. Um, yeah. And this is something that would have been explored with the proposed trilogy because Barker had originally as part of his free picture deal he'd signed on to obviously do Nightbreed and one of the other two pictures would be a sequel a sequel to this film um, sadly it never happened the reasons why I believe it it never happened really because this film came under budget I mean as we said already it was had a budget of 11 million in the box office it made 8.9 um, and since then, neither Barker or, or the studios have been sort of willing to return to it, feeling maybe there's not been the audience there. In the original cut, we obviously have Decker being resurrected and essentially yeah. <laughs> screaming with his mask on. It's a really cool effect. Um, 
and it actually, is cool. I, it scared it scared me as a kid. I was like, oh my god, he's back. And that that scene in particular made me really want to see like a sequel. I was like, I have to know what happens next. Um, mm -hmm. And that obviously Ashbury again is still he's still essentially on the path to becoming this main uh, uh, antagonist to obviously the Nightbreed. But it's not as clear as it is at the end of the director's cut, where he's essentially making plans. Um, he's he's established himself as being this threat. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, the only problem I have really with the the ending. I mean, both endings have. I obviously prefer the original ending because it's what I came up with. But I would say that when we obviously have this final showdown, why does Decker choose to put his mask on? He's wandering around <sighs> as the button face killer. He's why does he need to wear the mask? We all know who he is. I don't is know. This it's a magic like... mask. <laughs> oh, who knows I, it's it's another one of those things that's never released it's like he, he only feels I guess completely like himself when he's in the mask when he's the button face killer uh, he, he doesn't feel as confident perhaps or he feels like a monster because I mean at the end of the day this movie just really comes down to monsters who's a monster who are the real monsters who can you trust type of thing but I mean it's it's never really explained it's like why does he feel compelled to wear the button face mask there's not really a an explanation throughout the entire film except that this it's it, 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 another thing it almost feels like a horror trope where you need a mass killer to be an antagonist whereas at the end you have the uh you have ashbury who is basically the antagonist i mean great great and his his face gets deformed and becomes like kind of like deformed but he doesn't have a mask on he becomes a monster but there's no mask needed uh, it's not really ever explained why he. I mean, there's there's some weird stuff going on with the whole thing with him and Boone too. There's like this psychosexual aspect going on too, where it's like one last dance or hey beautiful and hey handsome. There's like this very kind of sexual connotation between Boone and Decker as well too. That it's never quite explained. Um, oh. I I don't know. It, it, it could maybe it's better explained in the comic because I know there's a Nightbreed comic also. That it's either goes along with the film or goes a little bit for the film too. So um, yeah, maybe it's we, explained. Because uh, we obviously had the, the the comic books like yourself. I I never um, read read that one, um, and that I know it's either, obviously no. based on these uh, the novella uh, called mm -hmm. Cabal. Which, yeah, Cabal. Yes. Which again, I've never read. I haven't read, read hardly anything of uh, Barker's uh, fictional work. It, everything I've Sort of have as a context for him has always been through um, the adaptation of his films, so things like Candyman and Hellraiser. Yeah, um, and obviously what I've read because he again he's a very well read man. He's very articulate, and um, he certainly did he did his A to Z of horror, which is again is something that's worth tracking down on YouTube. I don't think it was ever released on tape. I know there was a book um, accompanying it, but it's um, it, it was a great little series he he put out there back in. Again, I would say that was the mid '90s. He did that. So, but I went back to obviously the the mask and this idea. I couldn't help but feel, obviously, discussing with you now that it's this idea that we're constantly throughout the film faced with people's trying becoming monsters. We obviously have uh, like Boone, who is resurrected as a as a member of the Nightbreed, and then we obviously have people like Decker who. 
again, he wears the mask to become the monster. I mean, we've got the the preacher whose name I, Ashbury, uh, yeah, yeah. who gets burned and, and in turn becomes a monster himself. And it's there seems to be this running theme that about people trying to become monsters for some reason. Yeah, it's like uh, the thing with Decker because you even see earlier on in the film too when Boone first goes into his office to meet with him, and he has a, a wall full of masks, and they're kabuki masks, and they're like they look like African masks. They look like a a, ver- a variation of a lot of different masks. So you obviously know that Decker is obsessed with masks, or at least hiding his real identity from the world. Um, and he also he only feels comfortable when he is behind the mask, when he is the killer, when he is the butt face killer. Yeah. Um, but there is there isn't isn't really a lot of exploration behind that unless Barker's interpretation is that psychiatrists or psychologists are all psychopaths and like live live to love to live behind masks to hide their true intentions to patients or their family or anybody else as well too. And there's also the whole thing. You can also compare a little bit to like you know American Psycho, where American Psycho is also like an interpretation of like I have the, my mask is ready to slip from me or my mask of sanity is ready to slip. So you can compare that a little bit to how Decker's mask of sanity is slipping or not slipping. I don't know. It's a very complicated thing with masks. You know, you can thousand different reasons you can go into like what a mask means and things like that too. You know. Yeah, I mean. Another one of the more uh, common complaints here about this film is the fact that the monsters themselves, or our nightbreed, whoever you wish to call them, um, don't all follow the same set of rules, such as some monsters are affected by sunlight, others can be killed by bullets. I mean, did you, for myself, I saw it as being, well, they're all different monsters, so obviously they're going to have different weaknesses, but, I mean, did you prefer that they would have had some sort of like set rule that they all followed, or...? Not really, because I don't think I don't think one monster needs to follow the same trope as every other monster or have the same weakness. I mean, take a werewolf for instance. Werewolf has always been uh, susceptible to silver. Uh, a vampire is also has always been susceptible to daylight, silver, garlic, things like that. Um, I, I don't I don't mind. I mean, I think if you're a monster, because Midian to me is just a collective of monsters throughout history that have all they've come from all different walks of life and yeah the the vampire may not be susceptible to the same thing as the uh spiky porcupine woman or something like that it's like to me that that never bothered me it never really uh annoyed me with like if you're, if you're a mon- not every monster has to be like susceptible to the same thing i mean i think well <laughs> it is funny at the at the end fight with midian and like the uh, the, the locals and the sheriff it seems like a lot of monsters are getting killed by bullets so it seems like Every monster from Midian is probably susceptible to bullets. It seems for the most part to me, it's like they're just spraying their M16s, and everybody's dying for the most part. So, whatever. It, it, at the end, it doesn't really matter what they say about what monsters are susceptible to what. But um, but this movie also reminded me a lot of the film. It was a film that came out a few years ago, uh, Digging Up the Marrow. It was an Adam Green film, okay. and uh, it was a it was a mockumentary where Adam Green, who's also directed uh, Hatchet, the Hatchet series and things like that. He also has a, a show on Hulu. I forgot what the show is called, uh, um, but it's like a horror show. It's um, yeah. Oh, oh, what is it called? It's got some weird, weird name. Um, it's, it's, it's like Adam a name Fields. of a city or something like that. Haddonfield. Let's say let's call it Haddonfield for, for argument's sake right now. <laughs> but he came up with Digging Up the Marrow and it, I remember watching it was like, wow, this is Nightbreed if it was a mockumentary. Um, 
and it was kind of cool to me. So I'm glad the Nightbreed trend, or at least the Nightbreed uh, spirit, is still with certain people too. So, but it never bothered me with the whole thing about you can kill them with bullets or sunlight or this. Like, yeah. it didn't seem to matter at the end anyway. Everybody was getting killed. <laughs> it's uh, funny you should always mention Adam Green. Um, the series he produced as well is Holliston. Uh, which is kind of like a horror Holliston. version of the Big Bang Theory. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting, obviously, with the, the with Dig and the Mario, he would obviously try to do a documentary version of Nightbreed, uh, from what you would mm-hmm. describe it. Um, especially in Holliston, because his uh, imaginary friend is the lead singer of Guar. The oh, monster I wish. Band. That'd be awesome. Ungus. Ungus Erectus. Ungus Erectus, um, which. I think he's the sort of imaginary friend everyone should have. Um, he should he's be. Also, I don't know why you wouldn't. <laughs> he's also the imaginary friend who uh, wanders off when he gets bored, saying he's got things oh. to do, as we see in the series, when he gets bored of Adam's <laughs> whining. So. Rest in peace, Ungus. He's with the uh, stars now at this point, too. So, but, Yes. Sadly, yeah. uh, suddenly no longer with us. Um, mm-hmm. But I think while he may be gone, his music, the music of Gua will certainly live on and this toilet uh, will uh, remain in my top ten. It, it better because if it doesn't, something wrong with you, not with them. <laughs> yeah, I mean you, you cannot say. I I I think if someone doesn't get the subtle charms of Sadama Gogo, I don't think we can be friends. No, I, I don't want to be your friend. I don't want to. I don't want to live in a world like that that uh, that doesn't accept you know meat sandwich or you know sick of you. You know I'm <laughs> sick of you, pretty much. <laughs> um. I mean, favorite monsters. Do you have a favorite monster here, or mm. there's a lot to pick from? God, it's 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 a treat to just kind of see the monsters. I I love the practical effects. I love just the use of you know real animals, like real snakes, real scorpions, real yeah. eels, things like that too. I think some of my favorite ones. Um, and I had to look up some of these characters because they don't go by names for the most part. So you really have to do your research on what characters, what things like that. Um, I, I really like, I'll, I'll call him Moonface because I think that's kind of what people call him anyway Moonface, the guy with the blade um, I really like uh, Lude and, uh, and Gom they're kind of like the, the guy he has, he's got the uh, Beetlejuice things that come out of his stomach and around his neck and then the yeah. uh, the, the black demon behind him, I, I kind of like that whole uh, I'm a white per, uh, like a white figure with like a black shadow. I kind of like that whole thing, like black and white. I think it's kind of a dynamic looking duo and things like that. But overall, I mean, I would say the most haunting thing is still Decker to me. Just Decker in the mask is still the scariest monster out of the entire film oh, for yeah. the most part. It's still creepy now. Even though I've seen it numerous times, it's still creepy as hell to me. I've never seen anything like it before. I've never seen a it, up until now, I've still never seen a mask that uh, the collector kind of reminds me the 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 the, uh, the movie the collector in the collection. The guy kind of has a similar mask to him there, but it's still yeah. not the same as Decker's mask. Yeah, I think for myself, for monsters, I would have to go with the the one which is kind of like an ab- a beast woman, but its heads in the, in its stomach. Yeah, and I mean, you only see, I mean, on the VHS cover, they chose to use this monster on the spine. Um, picture and because of the suit limitations it can't exactly move around much it just basically waddles around the one scene we see it in but on the VHS cover you think oh my god this is going to be like this major monster it's going to play this key thing no. but it's in it for five <laughs> seconds but yeah. it's cool five seconds <laughs> 
hey, five seconds. I mean, it's better than no seconds. It's better than like not having in the film at all. But just the the practical effects in it are awesome. I I I, I loved it. I mean, it's just. Yeah. I don't know. People don't like the film. I understand, but I mean, for me, it, it left it left a lasting impression. The fact I'm talking about it 26 years later goes to show you that I still have an affinity for Nightbreed as a whole. Um, further watching, if you do like Nightbreed, where do you really go from here? Hmm. Jeez, uh, Nightbreed. I mean, it's, it's it almost seems like a bygone era, uh, era of like film. They don't make stuff like this. I mean, I would I would definitely say I would definitely recommend checking out Digging Up the Marrow. I think it's a very excellent companion piece to Nightbreed. I think it's probably the closest you'll get to a Nightbreed sequel. Um, you can almost consider it in the same universe because at the end of Nightbreed, they go somewhere else. Uh, so you can almost say that Adam Green finds where the Nightbreed's hiding out. So um, I would definitely say Digging Up the Marrow is an excellent companion to this. Um, I would say, you know, check out the other, uh, check out Hell, Hellraiser 1 through 3. It's still, it's Clyde Barker-esque. That's still when Hell, Hellraiser was still a fairly good uh, series. Um but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of another film that might come close to like how I think about Nightbreed. But there, there just aren't many like this. They don't make horror. They don't make monster movies like this anymore. <laughs> no, I think certainly in terms of practical effects and um, enjoyable rubber monsters, uh, then obviously John Carpenter's The Thing is the next one. Okay. So if we talk about legendary sort of practical effects. Um, yeah. Just in terms of of monsters, though, I, uh, the one I'm going to recommend uh, pairing it with would be um, Basket Case, and especially okay. Basket yeah. Case Two, where we uh, get to see Granny's house and she has her own little collection of monsters. <laughs> so um, while it's, I would yes, almost it's, say uh, Dead, Dead Alive also Dead Alive is a is a good companion. Peter Jackson's early work, it's got a lot of awesome yeah. practical effects and a lot of awesome uh, zombie effects too. So. Uh, I would definitely say Dead Alive as well. Yeah, Dead Alive is, is uh, great, or Brain Dead as it's known here in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if that's the movie where if you thought chainsaws were bad, you should see what they do with a petrol-driven mower. Oh, um, the best. And it also features a kung fu priest, which is probably... It does go on YouTube, and if you're not sold on that scene alone, then you know don't bother watching it, watching it because obviously that movie has nothing for you. But and yeah. <laughs> In particular, it has... The, one of my favorite scenes was like a complete afterthought where he takes a zombie baby to the park. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> it, it, uh, we're getting into a third movie now, another great exploitation. It's a great cult movie, just like the fact of this early Peter Jackson. Forget about all that Lord of the Rings stuff. Yeah. Watch maybe the first five years of Peter Jackson's career. Even fright, I would throw the Frighteners in there as well because I really enjoy the Frighteners as well. But, uh, from the Frighteners back, watch those. Watch Bad Taste, watch Meet the Feebles, and watch uh, Brain Dead or Dead Alive. And that's the perfect Peter Jackson education that you will need. <laughs> oh, and Heavenly Creatures. In, in the Heavenly Creatures as well. as well, too. If you want something a little more highbrow, you'll get Heavenly Creatures. <laughs> cool. Um, I mean, is there anything else you wanted to add to this one before we wrap it up? No, uh, I think, I mean... Uh, this is a movie I, I've always had an affinity for, and it's always been kind of one of those, I wouldn't call it guilty pleasure, but I think it's a movie that kind of gets really bypassed a lot of the time because I think it has a bad reputation of 
uh, not knowing what cut to watch. Do you watch the cabal cut? Do you watch the theatrical cut? Do you watch the uh, director's cut? So I think that really hurts the film in a way. Um, it's on Netflix Instant. Watch it online. It's two hours of your time. And I would put Nightbreed up to any other modern horror film that's being, that's being put out these days. It's, it's a great monster movie if you just want to watch it for a monster movie. Or it's, it's good for just a nice, creepy, Hellraiser-ish uh, film as well, too, with, yeah, with some stuff to think about, too. It's got some really cool um, kind of ideas in it. Uh, are you a monster? Who, who are the monsters you're living with if you really want to dig deep into it? Uh, but overall, I think it's a it's an entertaining film, and it's it, it has its merits. And I think it still holds up uh, almost a quarter of a century later. I think it still holds up pretty well. Yeah. I mean, for myself, I would recommend hunting down the original cut first. So that you probably have to get it on VHS now. Uh, yeah. I think even if you go online, everyone sort of put the director's cut up up there. Um, start with the, the original cut, and then if you like that, check out the director. Check out really the director's cut is probably going to be the next one you're going to be able to get hold of. But if you have the connections there, then uh, the Cabal cut is certainly worth checking out. Though mm-hmm. trying to get hold of it is, I think, is this point is either finding a film festival showing it or being having the right connections. I think it'll be the only yeah. ways you're going to see the Cabal cut at the moment. But the director's cut certainly comes close, and uh, even if it does clock in a little shorter. Yeah, but, or read the book, read Cabal. Yeah. Cabal's the book based on. So if you're really into reading, read Cabal. Then you get everything. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we return, though, we'll be looking at our second film this evening, uh, Kiss the Dragon. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases. We don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. we're back uh still obviously joining me this evening is matt hello obviously in the first half we discussed 1990s uh clive barker directed nightbreed um which we i think we're both safe to say uh on the opinion that it's still underrated and uh definitely worth checking out despite what some critics out there feel uh yes we are looking at you guys over the layer they wanted yeah come at uh, us i want to see what you have to say but saying that they <laughs> When I was on their show, they really liked Sledgehammer, which I did not get. Uh, but they didn't like Nightbreed, so I don't know. We're right there wrong, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> on to our second film this evening, though. We're going to be looking at Kiss the Dragon. This was a collaboration between legendary French filmmaker Luc Besson here on producing duties, uh, where the film itself is directed by Chris uh, Nehon. This is his first teaming up with Jet Li. Uh, they would follow it up with the slightly less successful Danny the Dog, uh, which kind of marked a downward uh, decline, really, for Jet Li. At this point, he was still riding high. He was really sort of making 
inroads within the Hollywood system with films such as Romeo Must Die and Cradle to the Grave and obviously this would be the real standout film he would make during this sort of period with making sort of kung fu movies within the western sort of Hollywood system. Was David the Dog also known as Unleashed? It was also known as Unleashed in the UK. Okay, it seemed to go back and sure. forth between titles. Yeah, because I remember in the US it was known as Unleashed. It didn't call it Danny the Dog. So I'm just making sure I got my Jelly movies uh, correct. <laughs> yeah. The film itself here, it sees Jelly. He's uh, sent, basically dispatched to Paris. Um, here he plays uh, Lu Juan. He's a government agent, and as the center is part of a collaboration between both the French uh, French Secret Service and as said, the Chinese government, um, and he's basically sent to assist Richard, uh, here played by Takashi Karo, who is basically an unorthodox police official to say the least, and it turns out he's also a corrupt cop, um, basically turning the mission over on Lou, who then basically finds himself teaming up with a prostitute here played by Bridget Fonda to essentially uh, take down Richard and and clear his name. Um, This is a real standout film for for Lee, especially when we look at his back catalogue and the films that he made before this. Um, I mean, we look at films such as Once Upon a Time in China, for example, which is just a real standout film. And it seems that he's always made great films when he was working within the Chinese and Hong Kong film system. And you look at real sort of standout moments, such as the end fight scenes with a fist of legend or his initial fight that he had with the equally fantastic Donnie Yen in uh, Once Upon a Time in China 2. Mm. Um, I mean, were you a fan out of uh, Jet Li on the whole or... Is it sort of more film by film basis for him? I remember the first time I ever saw Jet Li was in Lethal Weapon 4 because I wasn't really so familiar with his uh, work in Chinese cinema so much. So Once Upon a Time in China, things like that, um, Fist of Legends, I wasn't so familiar. But I think <laughs> it's funny how these things work. They're they're, they're very secular because this happened also with uh, uh, Jackie Chan where Rumble of the Bronx came out and then suddenly everybody was inundated with Jackie Chan cinema. So you saw Police Story and you saw uh, things like that. And then once you saw uh, uh, Lethal Weapon 4, it was like, oh, okay, Jet Li's the new Jackie Chan. Here's everything you've ever seen by Jackie Chan, uh, by uh, Jet Li. So it was very it was very funny how um, the American... But I don't think American audiences ever took on to Jet Li like they took on to Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan was funny. He was affable. He was like a goofball. He was very silly where Jet Li was like, Look, man, I'm here to fucking kick ass in two bubblegum if I had the time. I don't have time for all this other bullshit with Chris Tucker, even though he was in two films with DMX, which is fine. And, well, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is what yeah, essentially. <laughs> I like Romeo Must Die. I didn't hate it, but uh, Cradle to the Grave wasn't so great. So this, I felt, was the best for an American audience or just an, as an American viewer. Uh, Kiss of the Dragon was not it, it was very good acting I thought you know because um, I think one of the biggest things also this this happened with uh, Chow Young Fat a lot with uh, replacement killers because everybody knew him from uh, Hard Boiled and things like that but once he was in replacement killers it was like oh shit Chow Young Fat coming to the US Mira Sovino Antoine Fuqua this is going to be badass 
And then it was still him learning the language, learning the barrier between Chinese cinema and American cinema. Um, but I think Jet Li kind of took it a little bit easier than Xiao Young Fat. He was younger. Uh, he, he was a little bit more. He, he could be molded a little bit more uh, to make um, the film work. Yeah. But um, I, I thought his um, his acting was up to par. Um, it wasn't a struggle to because I think some of the things for American audiences too is that I can't I can't understand what he's saying. That's why it was really good and look the weapon for because I think he said like zero words. No, he was, <laughs> he was yeah. completely mute. Really, so. it was a completely mute role, but he was badass. It was like, man, this guy's kicking both Murtaugh and Riggs' ass. This is the best thing ever. Um, and then once you once you see him in you know Romeo Must Die, and then you see him in Kiss of the Dragon, it's like this guy's bumped up his chops. He, he can act well, plus he can fight. Um, but I, th- I thought he was great. And this is also a story by Jet Li, too. So he actually did some of the working in crafting the narrative of this film as well, too. Yeah, it's... As I said, uh, the, with Jet Li, he kind of fell between that middle period, really, because we obviously, as you mentioned already, uh, Bruce Lee, first of all, comes out and revolutionizes Kung Fu for Western audiences. Yeah. From I then, keep forgetting also, about Bruce Lee. He was very important. Yeah. <laughs> Um, obviously, from there we obviously have the the more slapsticky act uh, sort of antics of like the likes of Jackie Chan, Summer Summer Hong, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. really we got Jet Li who comes out and he's a legit martial artist. Yeah, and I think this is kind of a, a shock because he's not at the same level as obviously Bruce Lee was, which I don't think anyone ever will be. Donnie Yen certainly is coming close, but. At the same time, Donnie Yen is bringing a more MMA style to his fight scenes, and Lee kind of falls between that sort of change in the guard, really, because we're at one point Jackie Chan's at this point is still very profitable in the market, but we're sort of used to you know him this comedic style of kung fu. We're not used to this sort of more straight badass sort of kung fu, unless it's someone like Steven Seagal or um, Van Damme. Yeah. These are sort of like who our reference points are for martial arts. And obviously Don Yen is now sort of coming and he's really sort of picked up where Jet Li's left off in a way. And unlike Chow Yun Fat, who you mentioned already, Chow Yun Fat really did his best work with like Hong Kong directors like Ringo Lam and John Woo. Yeah. And unfortunately when he was making films in the Western uh, and the Hollywood system, he was not working with, with those directors. He was working with just normal sort of standard directors. And I think that's why he never really broke over here other than obviously the language barrier, um, the way yeah. he obviously did back in his native Hong Kong, where he's basically like John Woo and everyone else who's sort of gone back, back there after doing films for the West in the West, make your money, it's, make your money, go to the West and go back to the East. <laughs> they, but they return as these like returning heroes. Yeah, you conquered the studio system. <laughs> they they go over, they make like a couple of films uh, in Hollywood, and then they come back and they're sort of like seen as the returning heroes, even if like basically the views as box office poison. I mean, John Woo, after Paycheck, they they basically oh, yeah. like ridiculed him and drove him out of Hollywood. He comes back to Hong Kong, uh, obviously does Redcliffe, one of the highest grossing movies of all time, and the fact is, mm-hmm. it's essentially two movies glued to, glued into one. Um, over here in the in the UK, especially, they broke Brickcliffe into two films. But in in Hong Kong, it's shown as just one long movie. And you know, obviously, if you're not a director, no, you don't get given an epic like that to no, to work something wrong with. But yeah, I think this is really Jet Li at his best, and it's 
in a way, it's a counter-argument to the fact that, at this point, martial arts films have become very reliant on CGI and wire foo. Mm -hmm. um, and there's only two sequences which are assisted with the use of wire work and, and uh, CGI enhancement. And it's nice to actually see Lee getting back to that sort of ass-kicking style that made him so memorable, as I said, in like films like The Once Upon a Time in China, uh, 1 to 3, as well as Fist of Legend. Because um, basically all he does here is turn up and kick a lot of ass. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really simple story that we have, and he really makes it work. I mean, the, the fight scenes in particular are just absolutely phenomenal, and somehow they manage to keep constantly topping what we've seen before, um, and it's constantly staying fresh, really, from the opening chase sequence through to our final showdown, where he basically takes on the whole print French police force, it seems. Um, I mean, did you watch your thoughts on the actual film itself? I mean, were you, I'm guessing you're a fan of this one? I am. I mean, this has always been one of those, like, kung fu films, like, Americanized kung fu films that I've always enjoyed. Um, I think if, if you look into it, you might be able to read more into the film than there really is there. I mean, the opening sequence of the rabbits and things like that, I think there is a mention to, like, dead rabbits later on in the film, too, but... It's French cinema, so there's always going to be some type of cinematech type of like you know vibe going on, where it's like, oh, there's more meaning behind the kung fu than there really is. Like, what do you have mystical as your like uh, mystical music and like NERD music going throughout the entire film? I'm not really going to take you seriously as a, uh, a cinema verte type of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's not really going to be taken seriously for me, but. Uh, from the beginning to the end, it, it, it is also like a very cool, it, it puts you on edge right away because one, it's like a, a, a Chinese police officer going to a foreign land. So you you also have that like invading foreigners uh, type of thing going on there where it's like, we're not used to having Chinese people in France. Um, so it, it already puts you on edge a little bit where it's like, hmm, okay, well, this can't really go well. Um and then it, it's it kind of builds up this whole thing about like you know him against the entire country at a certain point because it's like and it also I like the way it builds up the tension where it's like how the hell is this guy going to get out of this because the, the deck keeps getting stacked and stacked and stacked and stacked and of course there's leaps of logic you got, you got to take and things like that too but it's a kung fu movie what are you what are you really going to take it's a Luke Besson movie yeah same guy did Fifth Element it's good. Everything's gonna be fine, you know. Even the the professional had more realistic things in this than this film. So, <laughs> okay. but but overall, I mean, the, the film is well paced. It's not too. It's not overly long. Where it concentrates on a lot of characterization because I honestly don't care about Bridget uh, Fonda's plate. I don't care about where Jet Li comes from. I don't care about um, Richards uh, why he's a bad guy or something like that. I don't care. I just want to see some kick ass kung fu sequences and the film gives me that and yeah. overall the film's fun and it's from the opening action sequence to i like the fact too because I, I i have the dvd and i and i had to actually pull the dvd out of dvd out of a box i had hidden away for a while because i knew i had it and i love the fact that the dvd has the eight ball or the red eight ball as the dvd cover which is a very significant sequence if you know what i mean if you've seen the film yeah. with the uh kicking it's in the trailer so him kicking the 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 the, the cue ball or the uh, the billiard ball out of the thing and hitting the guy in the head. What you don't see that you don't see that in movies. <laughs> yeah, 
I think, in a way, though, um, this film is really stolen away by uh, Takashi Kao, who, as we mm-hmm. say, plays the the corrupt police officer uh, Richard. And he's always he, he's exactly what you expect. <laughs> yeah, he's here. He's essentially playing a slightly toned down version of the character he played in the um, film Doberman, uh, with mm-hmm. Vincent Cassel again playing the psychotic police officer there as well. But here he tones it down slightly, but he's still off the. <laughs> Whoa, insane! I mean, we're introduced yeah, to him. Some <laughs> yeah, we're introduced to him, and he's basically shown wiping the blood off his knuckles from beating up a suspect yeah. in the kitchens. Um, <laughs> and from there, I mean, he has no respect for for Jet Li's character. I mean, he he openly admits that he doesn't want to use his real name because he feels he's just going to spend all his time butchering it. So he calls him Jimmy, I believe. Uh Johnny. 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 You're very smart, Johnny boy. <laughs> so he just belittling him from the start. He sees it's more an inconvenience the fact that the Chinese government has chosen to become involved in his case. He feels yeah. that this is something that he should have been left to handle on his own. And we soon find out the reason he wants to be left on his own because he's corrupt as hell. Um, mm-hmm. In the fact that he takes out this Chinese mob boss here, played by Rick Young, your kind of go to yes. guy if you ever want. An Asian mob boss. It's normally Rick Young yeah. who's going to be drafted. In. <laughs> I was about to say it's like I remember seeing him. I didn't have a lot of like uh, experience with him in this, and then I saw him in American Gangster. However, many years later, and he was the Vietnamese uh, heroin dealer and stuff. Like, oh, same guy. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, you you sort of look at his, you look at um, Rick Young's sort of filmography, and he's. Again, he's a mob. He's a villain in the transporter. He's in the corruptor yeah. again, playing a triad boss. So, um, I mean, he was again played a triad boss in the um, the the crime drama series Kingpin. So, it's normally when he turns up, he's you can pretty much guarantee he's going to play some sort of villain. I mean, he's in Temple of Doom again, playing another Chinese gangster. God, yes, he's he's in, yeah, he's in he's in the Obi Wan club. Oh, yeah, he's a uh, Cal Quan. Yes. Wow. Well, you know, um, it's it's hard out there for a uh, Chinese person to actually get a, uh, a a role of purpose, I guess, <laughs> when you're typecast that bad. Yeah, he he's kind of cornered the market in it. It's safe to say. Ah, it's sad, but it's also like, well, when you're that perfect, it's like you know, mm. you 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 made your mark. <laughs> but, um, Too much to drink, Doctor Jones. <laughs> we also have uh, Bert Kwong show up here as Uncle Tai. Yes. Um, who was obviously in the Pink Panther films. Mm-hmm. And a number of other very typical, stereotypical uh, performances for the BBC. <laughs> he would normally turn up as, oh, why is Asia Master? It's like, if you someone to play these like very stereotypical roles um, for the BBC, then he would be your go-to guy. Which, again, I suppose is real people really sort of playing up the typecasting, but I, I, just, I guess. Yeah. But from that, the opening sets such a precedent for what's to follow. Because obviously, when the shit hits the fan, so to speak, it mm-hmm. sort of all goes down well. Because basically, um, Jet Li's framed for the murder of this boss. He's like framed as being this rogue agent. He has to do this escape for the hotel. And the fact that he has to go for all these different uh, areas like he has to have a fight in like a, a laundrette in like the laundry room mm-hmm. and he we have this great scene where he knocks a guy into a dryer and he almost gets burned in a in a uh, ventilation duct and it's 
within this opening sequence, as frantic as it is, we're really establishing who these people are. Um, and that's why I really loved about it, about it is the fact that we can establish who characters are while having this real kick-ass action scene. Um, the only thing that didn't make sense is the fact that the airline pilot suddenly pulls out a pair of dual automatic pistols for no apparent reason. I, I had <laughs> I to question, did they always think why. he was going to go rogue? Uh, I don't, there's not really, there's a setup in a way where it's like, it just seems from the very beginning that everybody's in on whatever this caper is. I'll just call it a caper for the most part, because it is a conspiracy with uh, Richard and his his police force with, it seems to be everybody else in France. It doesn't matter if you're a pimp or you're a pilot or you're a uh, government agent or if you're in France, you're in on the caper with Richard for the most part. So I, it didn't really explain. I mean, whatever. It, it looked cool. Guy dual, like wielding dual Uzis, like you know, silver plated, <laughs> chromed out Uzis is really cool. So I think they were kind of thinking about like, hey, is this cool enough for people not to really question it? Apparently not, because Elwood Jones is questioning this at this point. I'm the other exciting part of this film is the fact that we get to see an early appearance by uh, Cyril Raffaelletti who's mm. basically known as one of the the founding fathers of uh, parkour. I mean, obviously he did the District 13 uh, films. Here he plays a character known as basically Twin, and he has this amazing double team where he's teamed up with um, Didla Azaloy, who basically is also known as Twin, but he plays the giant version. Uh, giant Twin, Small Twin. <laughs> yeah, basically you have Big Twin, Small Twin, and the Big Twin picks people up and the Small Twin kicks them in the face. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I, I, again, these are just very simplistic sort of character designs, but I just love what they do. I mean, we obviously have you know the big twins, the powerhouse, and then you've got the small twin who's like the faster martial artist one. And seeing how we have the fight scene in in the office where Jet Li's character takes on these two guys and how he's able to to finally defeat them, I love that mythology that comes with so many Jet Li's sort of fight scenes and like what we saw in Hitman where he's obviously having to fight the Caucasian mobster who uses his belt yeah. and his shoes to sort of constantly blind him and the fact that he has to develop this fighting style to, to, to counter these uh, belt buckle flashes and here again he has to find a way to yeah to, to obviously the to, to counter the kicking of the small twin it is really cool. I mean, when you see the the methodology of like Jet Li throughout the film, it's like you see him going from a person who's very, I mean, he's he's there to do a job, obviously, and you know he's obviously very skilled in what he does, and he's very resistant to killing, even in the beginning. Like he doesn't want to kill anybody. I mean, he's being forced into a very horrible situation, but it's not like he he maims people, but he doesn't kill anybody. But as the film goes on, you kind of see the point of the film where he's like, I've had enough. You guys have pushed me to the edge because you've killed my uncle. First of all, spoiler, he, no, his <laughs> uncle gets killed uh, where he kills the pimp, the, the guy who's like the main pimp with the chopsticks right into the throat. And that's where you kind of see the, okay, I've had enough. It's almost kind of like dirty, hairy. ish like you motherfuckers have pushed me too far and now I'm killing people with chopsticks. <laughs> and then it goes to the end of the film where no, it, it culminates with the twins, where he deals with the twins, of course. And then, of course, at the end with the, uh, the showdown with Richard, if you will. 
the other sort of aspect to his character is the fact that he's an uh, acupuncture expert. So he has this mm. little band of needles and he can paralyze people through inserting needles into various pressure points or pores on, on their body, which, again, spoiler alert, culminates <laughs> in what the kiss of the dragon is. This is a real leap the shark moment for myself in that people either love how stupid it is um, and this is throwback to you know the the deadly movie kung fu you know sort of like yeah, the, the five fingered exploding card technique <laughs> exactly um it's it's a real sort of like throwback to things like um as you mentioned like kill bill's exploding heart technique or if you want to go really out there if you look to like fist of the north star where you have the thousand crack punch fist of the north star yeah, your head explodes yeah yeah <laughs> basically again through pre- hitting pressure points on the body it it caused uh, this effect and obviously the kiss dragon it's this specific pore at the back of the neck which causes you all your blood to pour in your head and causes you to have a horrible brain embolism um yeah did uh, your thoughts on uh on this wonderful talent he he has it's funny because they bring it up from time to time and it's used so intermittently throughout the film. Like you see it first in the very beginning of the film when um, I think he's either introduced to Richard or a little bit after that where they see the thing on his arm and it's like, what's that? Like, oh, whatever. Like nobody thinks anything of it. It's just kind of like, oh, it's this bracelet. He wears, he, this Chinese guy wears a funny bracelet because he's Chinese. That type of thing. So it comes to the whole stereotypical thing that you know, that, that, that this whole movie is a big stereotype anyway, but it's fine. <laughs> um, but it, it didn't bother me so much because I think you're getting to a point where it's like you hate Richard so much. Like it, you, you created this big bad who's such a horrible piece of shit that you want the worst po- possible thing to happen to this person at the end of the film. So having that happen, it's like I don't think there's any worse way to die than having all the blood go to your head staying there and then just coming out of your eyes ears nose mouth and just having your brain rupture that's pretty par for the course for having for being a complete scumbag so i'm fine with it (laughs) i have to say it was always going to be difficult to top the scene where he takes on essentially about 20 guys with armed with batons that was like the lead up to the whole thing that that whole last i would say what 10 minutes of the film is just a culmination of the entire film there's just so much fun and you're just like yes you're you're excited your blood's up so, I loved all of it. I mean, you obviously mentioned mentioned uh, earlier Bridget Fonda here. He plays the American prostitute, so who's somehow yeah. in Paris, and basically her daughter's <laughs> being held by Richard, and she's basically been forced into prostitution because she's a, a junkie of sorts. She's, she's a junkie from North Dakota, I guess, right? Something like that. Um, I'm not sure why Bridget Fonda is even in this movie, whether they felt it was the only way they could sell it to Western audiences. Um, I didn't think Bridget Fonda had that much marketability um, these yeah. days, but apparently they felt that she did in, when this film was, uh, was released. I mean, I think the last thing I remember really seeing her in prior to this was uh, the remake of Nikita, uh, which in the States is known as Point of No Return, or The Assassin, or Assassin here in the UK, so... Yeah, I remember seeing she was in Jackie Brown in '97, so I remember seeing her then. But this came out; the film came out when in 2000 or 2001. So this is about yeah. three or four years after Jackie Brown, and I, I loved her in Jackie Brown. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess just like in any Americanized film, you need a pseudo romantic lead, or you need something to kind of like keep 
the hero going in a way. Uh, um, like you said, I don't think she was completely necessary to the plot, but you need to raise the stakes. I thought the stakes were pretty were already pretty high already for him to get out of Paris and destroy the bad guy, but he needed something else. But that's just the to market yourself in America, you need to have these uh, tropes <laughs> in film to make it uh, to make it uh, likable by an American audience. I guess I don't know. Um, further viewing, if you do like obviously Kiss the Dragon, where do you sort of go from here? Um, hmm. I mean, Kiss the Dragon. I, I would definitely revisit some. Uh, I would probably check out some uh, Tony Jaw stuff. Uh, some of the uh, uh, Tony Jaw stuff that's going on now. Uh, I would definitely check out probably the uh, Raid films, Raid Redemption and Raid um, Burndall. Is it Burndall? I believe. Yeah. Um, and I would, I would even dig in the crates and check out some of the old uh, Jet Li films. Check out uh, Once Upon a Time in China. Those sequels. Um, Fist of Legend is definitely good. No, that's kind of where I would go. I mean, the one isn't a bad film, but it's not necessarily a very good film either. Um, unless you like Jason Statham and Del Orlando and Carla Gugino. I don't, I love Carla Gugino. I have no problem with her whatsoever. But the one isn't very good. Uh, Romeo Must Die is good too, though. I mean, I like Romeo Must Die. I found the one's difficult because it's Jet Li fighting Jet Li. Yeah, so. which, hey, you can't go wrong with that, though. It's pretty badass. <laughs> um, yeah. I think for myself, um, I mean, just if we're comparing uh, fight scenes, I think certainly if you check out uh, Ip Man, which is a Donnie, uh, Donnie Yen film and features, again, his version of how to take on 20 guys at once. In probably one of the most <laughs> jaw-dropping action scenes I've seen in a long time. It's just absolutely brutal to watch. Um, also, its follow-up, Ip Man yeah. 2, is particularly great as it, we get to see uh, Yen take on Summer Hong, which he would also uh, do in SPL or Kill Zone as yes. it was uh, released. Um, and also in the Yen track, I would certainly check out um, Flashpoint. Um, again, Yen really finding that MMA style that he'd really started developing with uh, Kill Zone, and there he kind of perfects it. Um, for more Jet Li, though, I mean, obviously you mentioned Once Upon a Time in China, um, Once Upon a Time in China 2, especially. And, it's great. Just those first three films um, are pretty essential as his Fist of Legend. With his later films, um, from here I think Fearless is is again another essential watch. Is supposedly yeah. and the Hero's last. good too. I would definitely recommend Hero as well. Hero is definitely a good recommendation. Yeah. Um, and I would also recommend The Warlords which never seems to get enough love. I don't think as an American audience you're like, huh? I don't know. <laughs> it all depends who you're talking. I mean, it's... Uh, it's kind of the curse where you have Americanized films of like well-known um, Chinese action martial arts stars, yeah. and they see this, and there's no recollection of any other film that they've ever made, for the most part. And it's kind of unfortunate, um, but you know, it's just the way we are in America. It's the, it's the it's the Western audience, I guess, for the most part. It's like I want to see American people speak American, and this is me as a an American weeping for my own kind. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, any sort of final thoughts uh, before we uh, wrap this one up then? Kiss the Dragon's a lot of fun. I think it's kind of one of those underrated films that came out without, I mean, I think it got a good amount of publicity because it was like one of those first like Jet Li films that Jet Li was starring in for an American audience. So I think it is an 
absolutely one it's very minimal cg or wire work so it's very practical it's very old school uh it's got an ass kicking I, I like the soundtrack it pumps me up uh, as a hip-hop person i love all the hip-hop music in it even though i think it's very awkward and weird that i think this is kind of the era of martial arts films where they felt that you needed to put rap music in a film to make it marketable um I don't know. It seemed very weird to me. Uh, look at films like Cradle to the Grave and uh, Romeo Must Die for perfect examples of including rap in your movies uh, to make it marketable. Uh, but overall, I mean, aside, if you watch watch the movie on mute. There you go. Just watch it. <laughs> don't put any audio whatsoever. And the movie's still pretty ass kicking. And it's got some really amazing uh, stunt work, amazing action scenes. It has a pretty, it's it's got a good ending. I mean, the movie begins well, ends well. Um, this movie is pretty poorly rated on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think we spoke about earlier. Uh, so don't trust Rotten Tomatoes if you're looking for your review on this film. I think it's like fifty-one percent. Um, watch, just watch it. Yeah, they. <laughs> I'm just trying to see if we can find it. I think. I think it's certified find... rotten. Is it? But again, they so many good films are certified rotten. I think. There was a, um, and one of the drafts they did on the Lamcast where they just looked at the bottom ranked films on uh, mm-hmm. Tomatoes. And you have things like Boondock Saints, which is a great film. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's Certified Rotten. Yeah, I, mean, I think pretty much most things I like are Certified <laughs> Rotten on there, so. What do they do? Yeah, so last time I checked it, I think it was 51% for Kiss of the Dragon. Uh, I think 68% of the audience liked it, but 51% of the critics were like, this is rubbish, which. I don't know what to tell you. Don't believe them. They're liars. <laughs> They're damn dirty liars. Fair enough. Um, and with that, it brings us to the end of another edition of the Mad Bad Damage Strange Showcase. I'd like to uh, obviously thank Matt for joining us this evening. Um, if people obviously want to come and find you on the uh, internet and see more of your stuff, where's the best place to find you? Absolutely. Uh, we're Simplistic Reviews. You can check us out on our main website. It's simplisticreviews.net. You can find us on Facebook. Check out Simplistic Reviews on Facebook. You can uh, find us on Twitter. We're at Simple Tweeters. You can tweet at us and tell them I'm a fucking moron or tell anybody uh, in our podcast we're stupid. Uh, and we'll gladly give you a um, an at sign or a hashtag or whatever you want from us. Uh, we're a whores. Uh, <laughs> and you can check us out on uh, Letterboxd as well, too. If you check out Simplistic Reviews, we post uh, reviews on Letterboxd as well, too. And... Uh, that's pretty much it. YouTube, Simplistic Reviews on YouTube. You can check out videos, upcoming uh, podcast ideas, all that type of stuff too. So we're everywhere. If there's something on the internet, Simplistic Reviews is there to ruin your day. Cool. Um, well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We can get you back on again soon to uh, discuss some more films. It's been a lot of fun. It's been an absolute pleasure. In the meantime, obviously, uh, if you do wish to follow our show, you can uh, follow me on Twitter, which is uh, at Elwood. Elwood underscore Jones. Uh, also on the Facebook under the my blog, uh, which is from the Depths of DVD Hell, uh, which you can as always find at uh, from the Depths of DVD Hell dot blogspot dot co dot uk. Um, please, if you haven't done already, let us know what you think about the show on either the iTunes, uh, leave us a rating on there, or you can on Podomatic as well. Uh, we love hearing your feedback and uh, getting to find out what you uh, think of the show. 
Um, but until next time, this is uh, Edward Jones signing off another edition of the Mad Bad Down Strange Showcase. Remind you as always to keep it strange. <laughs>